We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression.
Yes, so people, um, as you said, people were suggesting, or your friends or your peers were were suggesting that you uh, go and work for, you know, work for NATO, but instead you decided to investigate NATO, essentially, um, as part of your your PhD. And, and I mean, what you turned up, uh, uh, just in in reading your book, it's, I suppose, apart from the details, the shocking details within the actual uh, chronology of events in Europe, uh, the most shocking thing for me is that as far as I'm aware, very, very few people know about this, know about Gladio, know about NATO's stay-behind armies, and have any awareness that any of this was going on. Like people today, they, you go and ask someone uh, if they know what Gladio is, and they say, no. Yeah, no, they have no clue. Like most people out there um, in the streets, if you ask, I mean, do the test with your friends and, and, and ask them whether they know what, what NATO's secret armies or Gladio is, and and most would say they have never heard of it because, in fact, when I when I um, approached the subject, I went to to some of my best professors in international history and, and contemporary history, and I asked them, "Do you do you have any knowledge on on Operation Gladio?" And uh, that was at the London School of Economics and Political Science, LSE in London. That was you know pretty good university, and mm-hmm. these professors are widely read, and they they're clever guys, and then and, and they said, "Oh, you know, I remember." Vaguely, that in in 1990 there was in Italy, you know, Giulio Andreotti, and, and there was an Italian political scandal, and something emerged, which which the details I, I can't recall. So mm-hmm. they had they had no clue of it. And and if the prof- professors for political science and contemporary history don't know it, I mean, how are you going to expect anybody in the street to know much about it? And that you know that hasn't changed until today. My book. Um, has reached a certain audience of a few thousand people, but uh, obviously it's not it's not um, millions that 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 read it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a few no. thousand. Un- unfortunately, but what I f- what I find amazing is that um, uh, well, uh, before before I, I, I get into that, why do you think people like you you just uh, cited professors in eminent uh, universities, etc. Why were they not aware of this? Is it the information? wasn't available or I mean surely they had come across it or seen reference to it but why why do you think historians would have so little interest in this is there some kind of uh, emotional component to it where they don't want to believe what the evidence suggests or um, I think the main reasons for historians not to research secret warfare it clearly is an, an, an example of secret warfare and we you know have many examples of secret warfare during the last 70 years. The main reasons that they don't want to research secret warfare is because it's such a difficult area to research. Um, you always have a, a mixture of lies and propaganda and hard facts, and it's very hard to say, is this now hard fact or is this, is this lies or is this propaganda? Right. So um, if, if, you, if you go into this subject, you, you can burn yourself in the sense of that, you know, you, you will pick up a story and you think it's, it's factual, and then it can be that later you find out, oh, no, I got it wrong. I got it all wrong. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a secret service who, who, who put up some stories, and, then, and I followed that mm-hmm. story. And so it's, it's more, I think it's more the, 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 it's like a jungle, you know. It's a very big jungle with very, very dangerous animals. Mm-hmm. And they say, why, why should I go into that jungle? It's, 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 it's a mess. I don't want to go into that terrorism debate. I, uh, I don't want to go into the secret warfare debate. And so um, they stay away. But still, you know, if you look at the market, there are lots of books um, 
from 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 veteran soldiers who write about their you know their life basically or, or people mm-hmm. working in the secret services who then publish their books or, or parliamentary reports from senators who've investigated um, the secret services how they operate and what's going on so I think in the end the, it's it's possible to go into that big jungle and and and, and find a few facts it's possible but you know it's always delicate yeah well you've certainly done a, a very good job and you've you've dared to go where apparently other historians <laughs> dare not go uh, and it's a very well-researched book. Uh, I don't think anybody could uh, question the, the evidence that you've presented, but maybe, maybe you can just give us a, just to start out, um, give us a, a short, an, a, as short as possible description of, of what uh, Gladio or NATO's stay-behind armies were. The uh, secret armies were set up after World War II, so World War II ended in 1945, and then, you know, NATO was formed in 1949, so just four years after the end of the Second World War, NATO was formed. And NATO at the time had the clear task to fight communism, um, to fight the Soviet Union. But they had the problem that they were thinking, if um, Western Europe is occupied by the Red Army, you know, if, if, if the Russians come and occupy Germany, France, and Italy and, and Spain and, and, and all, all, all parties, uh, all, all countries, then we need to have a secret weapon. We, we need to have a resistance army mm. that, you know, operates behind enemy lines. That's why you have that term, stay behind. And, and so they set up a secret army and said, you will operate behind enemy lines. And that's why we give you arms caches uh, hidden in forests or in Italy sometimes in cemeteries or on remote villages, and, and they had explosives, and they had guns, and the idea was to work as a resistance uh, and to blow up uh, communication structures of, of the occupying Soviet army or to blow up bridges or, you know, if you then have NATO pilots who fight in France against Soviets occupying France, you would, if they were shut down, they could then exfiltrate these pilots. So that was the original idea, to just have... A second option, a second card. And William Colby, who um, uh, in the 70s was the director of the Central Intelligence Agency of the American Secret Service, Foreign Secret Service, he said, he wrote the book uh, called Honorable Men, where he tried to defend the CIA. And, and he, he wrote that book and explained how he set up the secret armies in, in the neutral countries, in Sweden and in Finland, and that he set them up in NATO countries, in Norway uh, and in Denmark. And uh, that really was the official story, just to become active in case of a Soviet invasion. Obviously, we know today that there was no uh, such invasion, but there was a more more sinister, a more darker um, option to these secret arms, and that was exactly to become active in case of emergency in the absence, in the total absence of a Soviet invasion. Yeah, it's the, if that was the justification for it, in, in the event of a Soviet invasion. What it seemed to morph into was in the event of a leftist shift in power in any given country that had a secret army. And it, it was at this point in which these networks would become activated. Um, that is, that is the delicate part of it, yeah. It's, it's incredible when you think of well, 14 countries, how many different like, say, political crises, or even just, you know, routine elections 
did each of those countries have in that span of 40, 50 years? And how many of them were interfered with by the activation yeah, I mean, of one of these networks? Yeah, I mean, that, 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 is, that is really the thing, you know. We, we, when, when, when you look at, at the history of, of Europe, you know, you take it from 45 until 2014 today, most people think of uh, Europe as just a place of peace, you know. There was no war and there was no problem, there was no terror. It was just a place of stability. But that's not true. I mean, that's, that's a very superficial look at it. Obviously, we didn't have the Vietnam War here or we didn't have the Korean War here. We were not bombed like Iraq or Afghanistan or um, Sudan or many other countries. But uh, Europe had, had many problems during the Cold War. We had military coups, uh, three of them in Turkey. We had a, a right-wing dictatorship in, in Spain, Franco, with a right-wing dictatorship in, in Portugal under Salazar. And uh, we had a military coup in Greece in the, in the 60s. And we had a lot of terrorist attacks in Italy in, in the 60s and the 70s and in the 80s. And we had terrorist attacks in, in the 80s in Belgium and also in France, terrorist attacks. And um, what, what researchers now try to, to find out is uh, whether the Sikh army uh, organized by NATO, run by the CIA and run by MI6, had anything to do um, with these um, tragic events. Because it has to be said, in all honesty, that... that, that Quite a few of these secret soldiers um, were just waiting for the Soviet invasion. These were people inspired by, by the French resistance who had fought against Hitler or with the Norwegian resistance which had fought against uh, the German occupation of Norway in World War II. And they thought, you know, it's, it's very possible that the Soviets come and occupy uh, our country. Now, now in, in hindsight, we know that this didn't happen. But we can't, you know, sort of say that they should have known that in the 50s. There was no chance that they... You know, they didn't have that certainty. So, you know, I always make this point that there were few uh, good people in these secret armies, and we can't we can't sort of all lump them together as as, as terrorists. We, we, that would be unfair. But um, on the other hand, um, we also have the evidence, and that was the Italian um, magistrate Felice Casson. He was a judge, and he investigated acts of terrorism in Italy. And we have the evidence that uh, one specific case of, of a terrorist attack, uh, which was occurring in 1972 in the small village of Peterno in Italy, was linked, directly linked, to this uh, secret network of NATO. So uh, what Felice Casson found is that he said, uh, we had this terrorist attack in uh, 1972, a few uh, uh, people were killed in, in this attack, and, and at the time... The news, the media, television, radio, newspapers, all said that was the extreme left uh -huh. responsible for this terrorist attack. So the general effect on the population was to discredit the communists and the socialists because they were very strong in the Italian parliament. Yeah. And, and people were saying, oh, they're all terrorists, okay? And only 10 years later, uh, Felice Casson found out, oh, no, actually, this was all twisted. You know, it was all lies. It was all turned around. This terrorist attack had not been carried out by the extreme left, but it had been carried out by the extreme right. Vincenzo Vinciguerra was the terrorist who had carried out the attack. He was a member of Ordine Nuovo, uh, which is a right-wing uh, terrorist organization in Italy. And uh, he confessed, you know, he confessed and he said, okay, I carried out this attack. But there is, within the Secret Service in Italy, a lot of support for it. 
Uh, in fact, there is a secret network within the secret uh, service which is, uh, uh, which is linked to NATO. And um, at the time, you know, that was in the 1980s, everybody went like, you know, that's a conspiracy theory. That can't be true. It's mm -hmm. totally impossible that the Secret Service would support terrorism or it's totally impossible that NATO would set up secret armies. I mean, people couldn't, you know, even imagine that. And then in 1990, um, uh, Giulio Andreotti, who was then Prime Minister of Italy, was actually forced by the Italian Senate to step forward and explain, yes, true indeed, we had a secret army in Italy. Yes, true indeed, the name of the secret army was Gladio. Yes, true indeed, um, the secret services were running this operation. Uh, the American CIA and the British MI6, um, you know, set up the network after World War II. And um, so we have the data that the secret armies existed. We have the data that's all confirmed that the secret armies um, were supplied and trained by CIA, MI6, and, you know, special forces like the SAS from, from the UK or the Green Breast from the US. And we know all that, but and, and NATO and CIA confirmed that they exist. But what we don't have is official confirmation of CIA or official confirmation of NATO that they carried out terrorism in Europe. You have to understand that this is a huge taboo. Yeah. I mean if it's too I mean if you could prove if you could prove that NATO carried out terrorism in Europe, I mean NATO would have to have to be dissolved, you know, immediately mm -hmm. as, as yes. a huge threat. And it would what? have serious implications for its current rationale, namely the sort of recreation of the Cold War II. You need NATO to protect Europe and the U.S. against the, the Russian, Russian Federation, yeah. What, what I find interesting, though, Daniele, is, is there seems to be a disconnect between this rationale amongst these secret groups uh, and, and, and the NATO uh, hierarchy, uh, where they all apparently were afraid or, uh, of, of a Soviet invasion, a communist invasion of Europe, and they justified the creation of these uh, essentially terrorist groups um, to defend against a, a communist invasion. Yet in Italy, during the period that we're talking about in the, in the 70s and 80s, the Communist Party and the Socialist Party in, um, in Italy were very strong, reflecting yeah. a, 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 kind of a consensus amongst the people uh, who apparently weren't afraid of the communists and actually supported them. Yeah, they, they, that's the problem that NATO has, you know. They had, on the one hand, they had the, the, the Soviets in, in Moscow, um, you know, that all the atomic weapons, um, you know, aimed against them. There, were, there was a real battle between the two groups. And on the other hand, they had elected communist member of parliament in Italy and France and Belgium and a few other countries. Mm. And, and they said, if these members, you know, imagine Italy, you know, there's a... There's a a member of parliament who, who then becomes, um, uh, gets the chance to go into the executive branch, thus become a, a minister and, you know, minister of the interior or minister of defense even. NATO is totally shocked by even this thought. It never happened. It never happened. But they, they thought it could happen. And then we have a communist Italian defense minister. Mm. And that'd be nightmare number one because he would then just phone. Stalin or Khrushchev or Brezhnev or, or who was in charge in Moscow mm -hmm. and tell them all, uh, all the secrets of NATO because as defense minister of Italy, 
we obviously had access to NATO secret. Mm -hmm. And and this was this sort of, of thinking that you could not have um, the communists in the Italian government. And in fact, when Aldo Moro, who was a member of the Democrazia Cristiana, which is a center uh, government uh, in Italy, said we should have the communists in government, uh, he was killed. And mm. the, the, the whole idea of, of preventing um, communists in Italy from coming into executive power positions was, 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 was very, very, very far-reaching in Italy. And, and, and the problem is that if you have such a problem, you know, if you, if you know, let's imagine you and me are NATO generals, okay? It's, it's hard to imagine, but let's just try. Yeah. Because that's what we have to do as historians. We don't have to think in, in the head of somebody else. And we think, okay, we're now NATO generals. We're fighting the Soviets. And we see that in Italy the communists are very strong. Then, and that's a working assumption. Then the idea is, okay, we have this secret army in Italy. And why, why don't we take the secret army and, 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 you know, blow up a few bombs, kill a few people, um, and then say, you know, the communists did it, and that will really discredit them very badly, and on that basis, we can keep them out of government. And that is called the strategy of tension. Mm. And that is something which, which an Italian magistrate, and so there's a judge in Italy, uh, he discovered it, and, and that's, he actually blew Felice Casson. He, he blew the whole scandal. So, yeah, but... The question here for me is, um, I mean, it seems to me that they weren't afraid of a communist ideology. You say, you say in your book, and it's true, that uh, at a certain point it became clear that there would be no communist uh, or Russian-Soviet uh, invasion of, um, of Europe. But they continued on with these actions to discredit uh, leftist groups and communist groups in Europe uh, to keep them out of power. Uh, and... and I don't really think that I can't believe that this was just a purely ideological uh, battle for these people. I mean, obviously there was some something they were fighting against in terms of uh, a communist or leftist government coming to power in in European countries. How that would uh, how that would negatively affect these you know Western uh, American aligned uh, power brokers. I mean, what did they stand to lose if uh, a communist Party or uh, a or communist or, or leftist yeah. government, or even just a leftist government, came to power in in European countries. What was the problem with that? I mean, it didn't it didn't include uh, an inevitable communist uh, invasion of Europe. So um, the 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 fear of Washington, um, I think, was that 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 some countries might even leave NATO. I mean, take uh, take Norway. I mean, there was there was there was the idea at some point that. You could have Norway, Denmark, Finland, and Sweden as a nuclear arms-free zone. Uh, that was an idea um, that the Swedish, uh, who were not member of NATO, still are not member of NATO, uh, put forward and said, um, "You know, let's let's try that. Let's try to have this a nuclear-free zone." So you you did not only have the communists; you also had the peace movement which is always very critical of NATO. Mm. And, has, and uh, we, we don't need all this military spending. We don't need all these arms in Europe. And we don't want these, these, these Pershing missiles. We, we, there's many things we don't want. And once you have, you know, a population which goes against um, the Vietnam War and, and goes against NATO and, and, and basically says, you know, 
uh, we shouldn't kill each other, and all, all, all these ideas of the peace movement. Mm-hmm. Um, if, 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 if they get very strong, then as a NATO general, once again, let's think as a NATO general, then you just blow up a bomb somewhere in Rome or in, in Milan or in Bologna, and then you say, wait, you know, the world is full of terrorists, and now we're here to protect you. It's like the fireman who sets fire to your house, mm-hmm. and then the next morning comes over and says, hey, gee, you know, very good, you know, that you have a fire department here in mm-hmm. the city. We need an extra $1,000 from you mm-hmm. um, to support our work. So you create the problem and you present yourself as a solution. And it's, it's a very diabolic um, mm-hmm. uh, strategy, but, but if you come to think of it, it works. I mean, what I, what I, what I tried to do then is um, I looked at, do we have any evidence that, that Pentagon, Pentagon General signed anything like that? Uh, because obviously we have we have Italian judges who say, okay, uh, the Americans created terrorism in Europe. We have Italian members of the of the secret services. Even you know, they, you have to, to imagine that in Italy, you then had trials, so trials on on, on, on on these terrorist attacks, and then the secret services from Italy had to to stand there, and they had to uh, they were accused that they had carried out terrorist attacks in the country. Uh, and then people were outraged and were like, why did you kill children and women? And, I mean, what sort of secret service are you to go out there and kill people, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the members of the Italian secret services, one was uh, Dandelio Maletti, he said, you know, I, 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 I tried to keep that secret for, for many years, and now uh, Prime Minister Andreotti comes forward and tells it to Parliament. It's incredible. Uh, and, and, and others said... Um, the Americans have asked us to do this, you know, to fight uh, and discredit the, the left in Italy and to, to, to increase the strength of NATO. But for historians like me, it was very, very complicated to, to find a document, a Pentagon document, that would give support to the theory that the Pentagon indeed uses strategy of tension. I mean, the whole debate is strategy of tension debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, carry terrorist attack, blame somebody else for it. And the one document I found is uh, Operation Northwood. Um, mm-hmm. Probably yeah. familiar with it. Should, should, I, should I quickly explain what it is? Yeah. Operation Northwood was an operation uh, in, in, uh, in, in the Caribbean in the 1960s. The idea of the U.S. at the time was uh, to, to have a regime change in Cuba and overthrow the government of Fidel Castro. And so what they did is in 1961, they had the Bay of Pigs invasion carried out by the CIA. Um, it was uh, obviously illegal, um, but they did it, and it failed. Okay, the Bay of Pigs invasion by the CIA failed in 1961. And then um, the Pentagon sort of said, well, the CIA messed it up. Um, now we have a good plan because we're much cleverer than the CIA people. We are here people at the Pentagon. And the Pentagon generals drew up this plan and said, let's explode an American ship, blow it up on Guantanamo Bay, which is um, the American U.S. military base in Cuba. And that was a, a very, you know, diabolic idea again. You know, blow up your own ship and then blame Fidel Castro for it. And say, oh, you know, Fidel Castro blew it up. And this is, again, the same trick of the fireman that I said before. Set fire to the house and then present yourself as the solution. Mm-hmm. And the, the second idea, it was not only the idea to blow up uh, a ship, the second idea of Operation Northwoods was, um, let's take planes, civilian planes, fly them over Cuba, and then blow them up. 
so there would be drones. You know, you wouldn't put people in them. But you have planes that blow them up and say, in the American, uh, you know, television, say, okay, Fidel Castro shot down planes, and in these planes we had American girls who wanted to go to Bolivia to help the poor people there. So if you, you know, if you connect a very strong story with a false flag terrorist uh, attack, then you have everybody in shock. And then mm-hmm. people go like, oh, let's invade Fidel Castro's Cuba and overthrow this dictator. He's really bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and the third idea was to carry out terrorist attacks in, in Miami and uh, in Washington and then prepare fake documents that would say, you know, these were communists, these were um, Cubans. Now, this is Operation Northwoods, and we have the original documents, and we know that the Pentagon's, uh, Pentagon generals, the highest members of the Pentagon, uh, this is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, they signed it. That was Lyndon Lemnitzer. And then Kennedy, at the time president, he didn't want it. You know, at the time he was really fighting the military-industrial complex, and he said, we don't want that. Um, and Lemnitzer was then transferred to Europe as Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. So he was actually going to Europe and worked within NATO at a time when he was before in the U.S. thinking about strategy of tension terrorism in, in Cuba. And the European researchers now try to find out, is it possible that Pentagon generals have carried out strategy of tension terrorism in Europe? And we can't prove it. We just have, you know... Um, circumstantial evidence. Yeah, circumstantial evidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we've never had um, a, a U.S. officer coming forward and saying, I'm sorry. We did it. Yeah, it's bad. Never. Although there's been plenty, there's been plenty of people in Europe who've, who have come come forward and, yeah. and said that. But just yeah. to, just to just to link that back to what I was saying earlier on, then uh, it seems that the this strategy of tension and NATO stay behind armies and their kind of you know funding of terrorist groups to attack civilian populations. This wasn't for. Um, really to, to fight against the, the spread of communism over Europe, but rather to maintain uh, Europe as essentially in the, in the Western sphere of influence and also to ensure that it remained on a, on a kind of a, a militarized war footing, which ultimately generates money for the arms manufacturers. Yes, it's always, you know, if, if we have, you know, bombs that drop on Syria, if we have bombs in Ukraine, if we have bombs on Iraq, the Lockheed Martin and Boeing and Raytheon, they always profit from it. War is a business. That's, that's something I explain to my students all the time. Mm. I tell them, get rid of this nonsense idea that war is some sort of a project to help the poor or help women or mm. help the elderly. They suffer. They suffer tremendously in wars. You have more you know, you have more rape in wars always because, you know, soldiers go completely mad and start to rape women. And you go like, well, you know, wasn't the war meant to help women? I go, no, 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 the, whole, the war was never meant to help, to, to help anybody. War has always been a tool to help the defense industry once and second to, you know, to, to gain influence, to change the shift of power, you know, to overthrow a government that you don't like to install a new government that you like and then control a country like Iran or, or, or you know, where you had a, a coup d'etat in 1953 by mm-hmm. the CIA. So we're going through all these episodes of, of history of the last 70 years, and we find a lot of data that secret warfare is real. 
Okay, secret warfare. These are wars that are not declared. Mm -hmm. You don't read them in the press, and it says, you know, tomorrow the CIA and the MI6 are going to overthrow the government of Mossadegh in Iran because you know they nationalized the oil, and that's no good. We want the oil, and that's therefore we are overthrowing. You know, you don't have that in the news. In the news, you have you know the first novel of Ian Fleming, and you can read it on the, the stories about James Bond, but that's fiction, okay? Mm -hmm. And in the real world, we have, we have similar things that are happening, but with, that, with no accountability, you know, there's nobody, it's always illegal and criminal, but, you know, they, they, they got away with a lot of that stuff. There's a, there's a fantastic, um, a horribly fantastic, if I can use that term, uh, quote in your book uh, from uh, one of these right-wing terrorists uh, in Italy, Vinci Guerra. Uh, yes. He said that you had to attack civilians, the people, women, children, innocent people, unknown people far removed from any political game. The reason was quite simple. They were supposed to force these people, the Italian public, to turn to the state to ask for greater security. Yeah. Yeah, but the correct is, that, that quote is correct. And, and keep in mind, Vinci Guerra was the man who carried out the terrorist attack in Peterno. Uh -huh. So he was one who knows uh, the strategy of tension. Again, the strategy of tension uh, is, is, is very, is, is, is a diabolic strategy. You really carry out a terrorist attack, blame somebody else for it. Like you, let, let's put it that way. I, you know, I'd blow up a bomb and then just blame my neighbor. My neighbor will have a huge problem to explain that he didn't blow up the bomb if I put, you know, his passport next to it or, or whatever, his car, you know, just some, some incriminating evidence. And, and, and then I need the media. That's all I need. The, need. the media must tell my story to the whole world. And then people will be shocked and they'll believe it. And, 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 and only 10 years later, um, historians like I come and say, hey, we found out. It's totally impossible that this man carried the bomb there. It's, 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 it has to be a lie. And, and it's very difficult for us to reconstruct strategy of tension. But the quote that you just gave is an original quote which shows that terrorism exists and we have terrorism in the form of state terrorism, manipulated state terrorism. I'm not saying all terrorist attacks are state-sponsored. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying... Some of the terrorist attacks that we've had during the last 70 years were state-sponsored. And today, historians have to go through all these terrorist attacks again and find out, okay, gee, that's a lot of terrorism we had. Which one was state-sponsored? Which one was, was carried out by agents of the Secret Service who were actually trained to protect us, to protect the population? You, you say... Um that we'd have no hard evidence for any of this, that the, uh, or no hard evidence that the Pentagon or the U.S. government or the CIA were directly involved in this. But we, I mean, it strikes me from reading <clears throat> some of the details in your book uh, that we don't really need it because there's one, um, you make mention of, uh, in March 2001, uh, a General Maletti, who was a former head of Italian counterintelligence, yeah. uh, talking about uh, the, the Gladio Secret Army, uh, he said that the massacres which had discredited the Italian communists had also been supported by the White House in Washington and the U.S. Yeah. Uh, Secret Service, the CIA. Yeah. Uh, he said I mean, that's, what, that's one of those quotes. You know, John Delia Maletti says, and not, you know, in private conversation with his wife at 12 o'clock at night, mm -hmm. but 
in public in Italy under huge pressure, you know, in the trial of Piazza Fontana. The Piazza Fontana is a place in Milano where we had terrorist attack. And, um, and he says, yeah, I mean, keep in mind, the American government, the White House, and especially Nixon, he, even made, he said Nixon was a strange man. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he, got, he goes as far as to say that Nixon promoted terrorism in Italy. You know, he, he, sort of, he says it in a way that they don't shoot him right away, mm-hmm. but he says it in a way that historians who read his testimony, they go, like, Jesus Christ, did he just say Nixon sponsored terrorism? Did he just say that? Mm-hmm. And then we read, we read the quote again, and he, he basically says that. And, you know, it is, it is probably... Um, a form of racism that here in Europe we've been thinking that, okay, yes, of course, the Americans have bombed Iraq. <laughs> yes, they have overthrown the government in Chile in 1973. Oh, yes, they have, in, in, you know, supported the contrast in Nicaragua in the 80s. And, and yes, they have overthrown the Guatemalan government in 1954. And, of course, they have bombed Vietnam and Cambodia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they would ser- certainly not, you know, do such things in Europe, and 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 that's it's, it's very deep in in, in in European academics' heads that we research these cases in Africa or in Latin America or in Southeast Asia, and we go like, well, gee, that's gruesome, but we, we never think that it could have happened in Europe because it was this idea that we're friends, and and among friends you wouldn't do it, and 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 then you see that within NATO it was not just friends; it was a huge battle for for who runs the shop and who, who, who decides. And there, the Americans, um, it seems, you know, it seems support terrorism in Europe. But, but, but when I say today, still in lectures, you know, people go like, oh, that's all conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. And then I say, no, no, it's not a conspiracy theory. We have Operation Gladio. And then people go like, ah, oh, Operation Gladio. But, you know, no, that was just for self-defense in case of a Soviet invasion. The Soviet invasion never came, so it's no problem. I said, no, it's not that simple. We have specific cases of terrorist attacks where right-wing extremists testify that they were protected by the secret services, and the members of the secret services testify that they were um, supported by members of the American establishment from the White House and the American secret service and from the Pentagon. So um, it's not hard proof. I can't call it hard proof. But as you said, it's circumstantial evidence that we have U.S. terrorism in Europe. Well, I don't know because, I mean, just <laughs> again from your book, uh, you say that uh, you called an, an Italian parliamentary commission that investigated yep. Gladio and the Italian massacres. Uh, this was, this, uh, the commission was uh, concluded in, in the year 2000 that those massacres, those bombs, those military actions had been organized or promoted or supported by men inside Italian state institutions and has, as has been discovered more recently by men linked to the structures of United States intelligence. And this is from the, an Italian parliamentary uh, commission. So, I mean, are yes. they conspiracy theorists too? No, no, of course not. They're not. This is, this is hard data. This is historical fact. But keep in mind that about, uh, uh, you can't talk about these things with many people. Many people would go mad. They go like, this means you know, that the NSA has not only spied on the handy of Angela Merkel in Germany, because everybody goes like, we know that, and Obama said they wouldn't do it, and then they did it. But it's, you know, it's, it's another thing if you, if, you, if you set up totalitarian surveillance. I mean, it's not a good thing either, but, I mean, it's, if you kill people with a terrorist attack, it is worse. It's clearly worse. It's people like 
And is it possible? And, you know, I've debated it with many colleagues. And these, these are, you know, highly trained academics. And I've told them, do you think, can you imagine that the Pentagon or the CIA or the MI6 um, from the UK would kill people um, in other countries of Europe with uh, the strategy of tension? At most, just from their gut feeling, have said, no, 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 I can't, I can't imagine that. And then I've, I've shown them uh, the uh, quotes, like the one that you said, from the Italian Senate. And the Italian Senate has spent a lot of time investigating these uh, secret operations, and they know the truth, okay? They, they, they've really found out the data, but they couldn't publish the names. So in that quote, you don't have a specific name mm -hmm. of a specific person and a specific date of attack. It's a very general phrase which says U.S. terrorism in Italy is a fact. And the, 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 the problem is that we can't go and say, oh, here it says Henry Kissinger in the National Security Council mm. meeting of that uh, date argued for a strategy of tension in Italy. We don't have that specific data. And that's why I still say it is circumstantial evidence. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's, it's, it's solid evidence. But, um, you know, standing, uh, 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 you know, under rather strong pressure, I mean, I, I, I filed the Freedom of Information Act with the CIA. This is a, a law which allows you to get all the data from the CIA uh, on all CIA uh, operations uh, during, during CIA's history, during, you know, during the last, I mean, it was created in 47. And, and then I said, give me the data on Operation Gladiator. And then CIA wrote back, um, sorry, can't give you that data, it's top secret. And I said, well, you know, we have a lot of data anyway here in Europe because I, I read Italian and a lot of this data is just in Italian. And some is in French and some is in German. So the American scholars don't, don't read these different languages. But I'm Swiss and we, we speak quite a few languages just mm -hmm. because our country is made up of three languages. So then I, then I read these Italian documents and I, I write back to the CA and I say, um, please, Give me the data because then you can participate in a, in a discourse on Operation Gladio. And this discourse will take place anyway. And then they write back and say, no, we can't give you any data. Okay. So the CIA is not transparent. They don't. They will never admit that they carried out terrorism in Italy. The second thing I did is I wrote to NATO. And then NATO said, oh, we can't give you any uh, details on Operation Gladio. And I said, why not? And I said, yeah, well, Switzerland is not a NATO country. And I, and I said, well, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're surrounded by NATO countries, and, and, and I'd like to have two more details. And I said, okay, hand in a letter to the Partnership of Peace office, because Switzerland is a member of Partnership for Peace. And I said, a stupid name for a sort yeah. of kindergarten, for, for a kindergarten of NATO, for, for countries who are not NATO members yet, but NATO would like to have them in NATO soon. And then, and, you know, I, I wrote a letter, and I gave them all the details uh, on the specifics that I was researching, and I said, it didn't exist. It never existed. And that's a lie, okay? NATO just says Operation Gladio never existed. And so, and, and they, that is incredible. You really have to keep in mind that CIA and NATO don't like the Gladio story at all. Yeah, and to this day, that is their official line. Um, their official line was uh, on, 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 in 1990 when the Italian uh, Prime Minister Julian Drotti said, uh, we have the secret army in Italy, and it existed also in France and in Greece and in Belgium and everywhere. <laughs> People were totally shocked in many countries. Uh, uh, then NATO said, um, we um, have never had secret armies. We don't do guerrilla warfare. We don't do secret warfare. 
And on the next day, a NATO spokesman had to come forward and say, what we said yesterday was wrong, very sorry for it, uh, we can't give you any further information because that's uh, military secret. <laughs> wow. and, you know, it's just, yeah, I mean, said, you ask neither... yourself, what, what, what world are we living in? Yeah. yeah, it's so Orwellian. We can neither confirm nor deny what we just said yesterday. You know, in, in the end, you have to take it with a punch of, of, of irony because otherwise it'd be completely, you know, you can't Farcical. really support it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, just when, we're, when we talk about these terrorist attacks perpetrated by essentially NATO uh, in Europe during the 60s, 70s and 80s, uh, in, I, mean, I mean, we're not talking about small scale, like one or two people killed. And some of them, the, these are major uh, terror attacks. I mean, for example, uh, Bologna was 80 people killed, I think, right? Yeah, Bologna was 80 people. The problem is, I, I have to repeat that, that we can't link NATO directly to Bologna. We can link Bologna to right-wing terrorists. We can link the right-wing terrorists to the Italian Secret Service, and we can link the, the Italian Secret Service to NATO. That's what we can do. But the problem is that NATO then always comes forward and says, oh, gee, these were just runaway crazy guys on the lower level. Okay? They never, we don't have written data where you have a NATO Supreme Allied Commander Europe who says, please blow up a bomb in yeah. Bologna train station. We don't have that. Yeah. And that makes it very difficult for, for historians to, to nail it down, I mean, to, to really say, okay, come on, what have you done? I mean, it's the same thing with the Brabant massacres. I have to maybe quickly explain what the Brabant massacres are. We have to shift away from Italy and go to Belgium for a moment. In the 19, 1980s, in Belgium, you had a series of, 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 of shootings, of killings, of assassinations, which were carried out by highly trained gunmen. They drew, drove to supermarkets and just shut everybody down there. You know, women, children, elderly, they just didn't care. And they didn't even take the money from the supermarket. So they were not robbers, but they, 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 were, they were gunmen to, 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 who wanted to terrorize Belgium. And they even went that far that sometimes they drove away and then the police followed them. So they waited for the police and shot the police too. I mean, these guys were really, you know, very nasty. And now in Belgium, you have a debate because Belgium is the headquarter of NATO in Europe. You have a debate whether these terrorist attacks in, on the Belgian supermarkets, which are so-called the Brabant massacres, that's how they're called, whether they were carried out by the stay behind where they were uh, carried out by NATO. And once again, you have to keep in mind that this is ongoing research. There's no definitive proof of one or the other version. But it is very, very difficult for the Belgians, as it was for the Italians, to find out that there was a secret army in Belgium. Now we have the confirmation. It existed. It was, his code name was SDR8, so it's a different name than Gladio in Italy. But... There was a secret army. It was linked to NATO. It was trained by CIA. It was trained by MS6. Um, uh, it was uh, assisted by the Special Air Service of the British and uh, the, the Green Berets by the Americans. So they were trained in covert action operations. But we still don't know whether the Brabant massacres were NATO terrorism. But they could be. It really could be. But think of it. I mean, think of a NATO operation killing people in supermarkets. How bizarre is that? We do know that those same... SAS and U.S. Special Forces were doing that exact kind of thing 
in places like Latin America. That's it. We know that, yes. But there I always say, oh, yes, I mean, these are just Latinos. Kill them. Oh, yes, these are just Africans. Kill them. Oh, yes, Vietnamese. Kill them. You know, this, there is racism in yeah. research that it's, if, if you kill somebody in Belgium, it's not the same that if you kill somebody in Sierra Leone. It's not the same. And this has to do with the, the, the discourse that we have in NATO countries. And the discourse basically is that we kill people outside of NATO. Okay? And, and you know, we bomb, we bomb the Iraqis or... You know, I, I researched the language of the soldiers and um, American soldiers in Iraq used phrases like, shoot the fucking sandmaker. Sorry for the language, but that's a direct quote. Yeah, and what does it mean? It means that the other human being um, has no right to live anyway. He is, mm-hmm. he's, he's something like a cockroach. And that's the same thing that we had in Rwanda. You know? I'm very active in peace research. And, and we always have the same thing. First, you, you lose the right to be a human being and used to the right to, to be alive through the language. Mm-hmm. It happened also to, to, to the Jews during World War II. You know? They were considered animals. And then you, you just gassed them. Or it happened to the, air, to the policemen in Germany in the, in, during the uh, Rote Armee Fraktion. The Hotel May Fraktion was a German uh, left-wing terrorist organization, and they said, policemen are pigs. And then, pigs, you can slaughter pigs, right? And, and it's always in the language where human beings are sort of put on a level of ready to kill, death row, basically. And in, in, this, in this lingo, we know that we had strategy of tension in, in, in Chile. We know that we had it in Latin America, many places. We know that uh, Cambodia was, was bombed illegally and that, that Nixon altered the, manipulated the, 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 the entries of the Air Force to say that the, drops, the bombs were dropped in Vietnam, whereas, in fact, there were, some of them were dropped in Cambodia, but that you know, would have been illegal, so they just changed the, the data. And we know all these things, but still, when we talk about Operation Gladio, when we talk about NATO and the terrorism in Europe, it, it's like a, a massacre in, the, in your own family. Yeah, yeah, so so in dismissing the idea that uh, you know white Westerners in power would kill white Western civilians, um, uh, women, children, uh, women and children, yeah, they um, they evoke a, a kind of latent racism within Western populations that yep. uh, you know that it's okay to kill them in other countries far off with brown colored or you know whatever uh, skinned people, um, and of course if you mention the Second World War and the Jews, uh, as you just did, uh, the Holocaust, um, that was, of course, a crazed uh, Nazi regime with Hitler, the madman. So that can be dismissed as well. But as you mentioned in your book, when uh, it was brought up, when the Gladio and strategy of tension and NATO's stay-behind armies was brought up um, in Germany, uh, it was was on a a private television channel, uh, RTL, uh, announced that the German uh, that, that the German operation of Gladio uh, had included former members of Hitler's special forces. Yeah, that's yes. true, and that's true. The evidence uh, is here. We have that evidence. Nazis in NATO secret armies. Yeah, I mean, but it's also, a bizarre world, isn't it? Geez. but I mean, when we talk about uh, this kind of racism, I mean, there's a lot of evidence from Northern Ireland that um, that the British. Uh, military intelligence and uh, civilian intelligence uh, agencies 
during the so-called troubles in Northern Ireland were were involved in uh, carrying out these kind of uh, attacks on civilians in order to defame or to uh, to blame the the IRA, for example. And just talking about the UK in your book as well, when when it was brought up uh, in the early 90s, just in 1990 or 90, 91. Uh, the then British Defence Secretary Tom King had to handle those kind of questions from reporters about Gladio and NATO stay behind armies, and he um, he kind of joked about it and dismissed it, kind of thing. And there was also um, the fact that the Operation Desert Storm had just been uh, announced, uh, so yeah. that, that that kind of pushed Gladio off the off the papers. But it's interesting to me, anyway, because I'm from Northern Ireland, that. Yeah. Um, that Tom King, the defence uh, secretary at the time, who dismissed these Gladio uh, questions from from the reporters, he had just uh, come from a post in Margaret Thatcher's uh, government, which was just the year before in, in 1989. Uh, he was the Northern Ireland secretary, so he came uh, from being the Northern Ireland secretary and overseeing at that time, uh, effectively a kind of Gladio-style operation in Northern Ireland, where a strategy of tension was used to to divide the communities and to uh, discredit the uh, groups like uh, political parties like Sinn Féin and uh, and the IRA. Um, and I think moved, I think we can directly. learn a lot if we look at these details. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's if we look at, at the conflict in Northern Ireland, you 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 know, probably know more about it than I do. But what, one one element which struck me was. Um, this military reaction force, it was called, MRF. That was, that was um, a secret force um, um, of, 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 of British soldiers, but they were in plain clothes. And, and they had guns with uh, silencers uh, on them, and they patrolled through Belfast. And their job was to, to shoot IRA terrorists. So they, um, plain clothes, military people uh, uh, walking around in Belfast. And you know, some, sometimes they shot a real terrorist, and sometimes they, they got the wrong man and, and mm-hmm. just shot him. Mm-hmm. And, and then you ask yourself, wait a moment, that's British tax money. Mm-hmm. And they give that to assassins, and, 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 and these assassins then kill people. I mean, it's already hard to pay taxes, right? Mm-hmm. But when you know that your taxes is, 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 is really going to assassin, assassins who are not, they are not um, accountable because they're in plain clothes. So if you walk around in Belfast, you'd think, you know, this is just gangs. <laughs> and then later, only years later, you find out, Jesus Christ, some of them were gangs in the sense of these were, were, were young men, angry, with no job, and, you know, they, they started to kill each other. I mean, mm-hmm. they do that. I mean, if, if they're 18, they have no job, and they, mm-hmm. they're really angry because their friend's been shot, they, you don't need a state to sponsor you. You can, you can, you can get angry yourself. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's possible. But... Not everybody was just was just um, uh, a gang. Some of them were agents of the state, mm-hmm. and and if I look at that, then the, the the military reaction force MRF, I remember that name, operating in Northern Ireland, was a state terrorist organization, mm-hmm. and and I always, you know, I'm, I'm I'm struck at the level of of superficial discourse that we have today that we always go like. No, we wouldn't do that, and you know, it has never happened, or a democratic state would never use terrorism to reach an aim. And I said, that's just nonsense. If you look at the French, what did they do? They, in 1985, they wanted to test nuclear bombs in the Pacific, 
And then this Greenpeace organization, which is an environmental organization, said we don't want to have nuclear tests um, above ground in the Pacific. So they had a ship, which is called uh, Rainbow Warrior, and they drove into that testing zone with their ship. And then, um, uh, you know, obviously the French couldn't do their nuclear test. Greenpeace had the ship exactly there where they wanted to explode the bomb. And then the French uh, president, uh, Mitterrand, he was a socialist, by the way, uh, he said, well, that's not good. We have a ship in the way. Somebody has get rid of that ship. And then he, he said to his defense minister, uh, Pierre Henry, uh, get rid of that ship. And then he said, okay, I have to go to the, the boss of the Secret Service, Admiral Pierre Lacoste. And the boss of the Secret Service said, okay, I have to go you know, to my agents of the Direction Générale de Sécurité Extérieure, DJC, that's the French DA. And they just, you know, had, had um, people who, who went to the ship, put a bomb on the ship, and then blew it up. I mean, that's terrorism. And that's state terrorism, French state terrorism. And it's just many in academia close their eyes and say, no, we have no state terrorism. And that's really, that's a problem because if we're blind uh, uh, towards state terrorism, we'll not understand what happened during the last 70 years. We'll, we'll never understand it. It's part of the problem of this violence that we're all trapped in. I'm not saying everything is state terrorism. That's, that's nonsense. But we need to we need to understand that many on, on the higher levels of defense ministers, um, as uh, Tom Hague or, 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 or in, the, in the secret services, they are convinced that you can somehow um, do a violent management, you know, a bit of terrorism there, a bit of war lies here, and, and they will, you know, provide some good results. And, and in fact, it doesn't. I think part of the, the mental, emotional block, people, ordinary people and academics who have access to far more information, the block they come against is, oh, geez, we're talking about a conspiracy here. I can think of a conspiracy, yeah, like a, a local one where, you know, Party A wants to come into power and conspires against Party B. But this is so big and it's so, we're talking about a large number of people, a large number of weapons and a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And over 40 years, because the story really only broke in 1990. So I think when people try to, to do the, the, the arithmetic in their heads, that's probably where they go, uh, no, this, this can't be true. Now, that's it. Yeah. So they, yeah. They, prefer, they prefer to sort of block themselves from certain facts instead of having a one heavy disappointment. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I tell all my students, why don't you go through this one heavy disappointment, which basically tells you that some things are very nasty out there. It's not only in James Bond. It's really out there that you have secret warfare, you have manipulated terrorism, and, and we have the data to prove it. And, 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 you know, it makes you sad. At the end of the day, it makes you sad, and you go, like, what place do I live in, and why is this like that? But once you've gone through this certain sadness and depression, um, you wake up again, and you have a much more, you have a clearer vision. You know, you you are not, you're not sort of blocked by 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 following the mainstream media every day. And you know, they they tell you now we have to bomb this country or that country. You go like, oh, why? Is that now true? Is it false? What's going on? Who's who's this terrorist organization I've never heard of, which is now the biggest threat worldwide? And then it gives you. It gives you your, it gives you back your, your thinking, basically, your, your independence. And that's what German philosopher uh, Immanuel Kant once said. He said, sapere aude, as in Latin, it basically means use your brain. I mean, be an independent human being. Be in dignity and, and you know, don't, don't get fooled every day. I mean, that's, 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 that's no dignity in it.
And the truth shall set you free, as they say. Yeah. Daniele, thank you so much for being on this today. Thank you very much for, for an interesting conversation, and yeah. um, good luck to you. Do you have any further uh, uh, plans for any, any updates on, on, this, on this story? I mean, I follow secret warfare generally. You know, I, I look at it. I look at the 9-11 debate. I look mm. at the Ukrainian debate. I look mm. at uh, Syria. I look at uh, Libya. Because I want to tell people also that it's only a very small minority of human beings who are engaged in this secret warfare. If you take 1% of, of the world population, that would make it 70 million people mm. who carry out these attacks, who who conspire and then and, and blow up the things and really kill and, and maim. It's only 17 million people. That's 1% of the world population. Now, the problem is that this 1% can do a lot of damage. That's mm -hmm. true. Uh, 70 million armed people shooting yeah. around, raping. The, you know, you, you can see the mess. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but I'm saying if it's only 1%, and, you know, there's a lot of people out there who don't want it, who don't like it, and who try to, to, to get access to to, to, you know, uh, research that actually, you know, shows how this whole thing works, um, then you can still, there's still reason to be positive. So that's maybe mm -hmm. my conclusion. I don't want people to be negative once they've heard of secret warfare uh, and strategy of tension and manipulated terrorism. Yes, it exists. Yes, we have the data for it. But uh, I also want to mention this, that human beings, I think, are, are wonderful creatures. They, they can help each other. They can love each other. They can support each other. And it's not that they're all terrorists. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. <coughs> okay. Well, we'll let you go, Daniele. And thanks again for being on. And, and thanks for writing your book because it's extremely valuable. And everybody who's listening to the show should really uh, consider getting themselves a copy because it lays out in very, very stark and plain detail exactly the kind of uh, reality we live in and this um, this one percent and what they're capable of. So, get the book. Okay. Thanks a lot for your help. Okay, Daniele. All the best. Take bye care. Bye. bye. Well, that was very, very interesting. And what a book it is, too. Um, obviously, we there's only so much of it you can cover in an hour, but um, it's all there. The strategy of tension, Operation Gladio. Operation Gladio is what it's most known as and referred to by those few people who do refer to it. But just to clarify, Gladio was the specific name given within Italy for what was a much larger operation across Europe. He gave one other name, I think it was a military name, SDR8 or something for Belgium. And other countries had other bland Orwellian terms. Um, of course, the question is, I mean, there's no reason to believe this stopped. Obviously, today we're in the war on terror phase and <clears throat> the narrative has switched from it's the evil commies we want to protect you from to it's the evil Muslims we want to protect you from. But there is absolutely no reason to, that, to believe that the existing structures in 1990, which were very, very briefly exposed, would have been uprooted. Well, why would they? Because the CIA and NATO and other institutions to this day do not even acknowledge the existence of anything to do with any of this stuff. And yet... It's irrefutable because separate sources in different countries had their own investigations at as high a level as you can go on a civilian level. 
parliamentary investigations in at least Spain and Italy. And they had all the circumstantial evidence they needed to make such statements as this clearly goes all the way to Washington and the Pentagon. So, yes, this is a conspiracy. And yes, it's real. Conspiracy fact, not conspiracy theory. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know, it just... Uh, the, the whole discussion leaves me with a, not for the first time, but leaves me with a sense of kind of two parallel realities, you know, when someone can, uh, like uh, Daniele can uh, unearth all of this information about effectively how, you know, our governments and the elite really uh, operate and what they've really been doing. And then you uh, you consider how most people actually think about how they operate and what they're doing. Uh, you just, I, I get a sense of uh, a kind of a disconnect, you know, from, from reality. You know, I have to kind of do a double take and go, okay, it's, it's difficult to kind of like live in both of those kind of worlds type of thing. One where governments basically go out and kill, uh, you know, civilians, their own civilians, uh, to further their political goals. Uh, and then the other warm, fuzzy reality where there are our leaders and they they they're um, you know they're they're elected by us and they're public servants and they do what we tell them to do and you know it just and, the and they're constantly so telling far. us their their raison d'etre is to protect us. Yeah. When the only major threat to anybody anybody anywhere is these same people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much. So, um, we had, uh, yeah, but, um, Dr. Ganser was, you know, naturally kind of circumspect about making any hard and fast, drawing any hard and fast conclusions, Mm -hmm. you know, as to whether or not the actual original purpose of Gladio slash secret armies was ever to do with fending off a NATO invasion. Well, let's assume it was, but that it quickly evolved into something quite different. There are, there are a few things, though, that fly in the face of the of that narrative ever being true, even for the original creators of this program, namely that, for starters, the program was up and running before the Warsaw Pact was created. Uh, same for NATO. So when they tell us that, no, when NATO was there to protect us from, you know, clear Soviet aggression, well, historically, the Western military alliance came first and then the Soviet one. Anyway, um, nevertheless, because Ganser has been so diligent as he would be, because, I mean, this was his PhD thesis and he ended up getting a tenureship and founding his own um, organization. So he's been very diligent. He's never stuck his head out too far. But you still are left with at least uh, the the collection of views of other people whose views cannot be easily dismissed, whether it's a senator in Italy or a minister in Belgium or a minister in France or Germany, for that matter, who all – and. Ganser has collected them in, in his book, all make such statements as, well, this is clearly something that goes to the very top. 
Um, circumstantial evidence, that's all, yeah. That's what you go on. But of course, if this is the kind of operation that we suspect it is, it's naturally going to be um, something without a paper trail. Or if there is, they're not going to give you those papers. So there never is a smoking gun. We know this just from reporting on contemporary events, I mean, that have happened in the post 9-11 terror framework. So it wouldn't be any different for a similar setup going on between 1945, 1990. Um, it's like uh, it's like what X says in, in the movie JFK. X, of course, being the He's supposed to be the character of the character who plays the kind of role of Colonel Prouty, whose great book Secret Team goes into very good sort of insider detail as to how these operations are carried out. And there's a great part in the movie where he's telling, um, oh God, the New Orleans Attorney General, I forgot his name who's investigating the assassination of JFK, you know, nothing is ever written down. There's just words on the wind. Nevertheless, um, there is, in fact, like the way Prouty described, as kind of a structure, a cell structure within the Pentagon, within the CIA, Ganser seems to have hit on that as well. It's not that he uncovered it, but the Italian Parliamentary Commission and the Belgian one both came to the same conclusion that the way these meetings worked would be a rotate on a rotating basis where the heads of intelligence of each of the 14 European countries involved in this would meet. And they even had a name for it. They both had the same name, both of these independent investigations. I think the initials were the Allied ACP or something bland. They would meet in Brussels regularly. Alternatively, they'd meet in on a rotating basis in European capitals and the the CIA station chief of whichever capital they met in always sat in. So they were present at every meeting. And right there you have an informal network. No minister taken. There's no report issued. Nobody says, I hereby declare you need to do this. Excellent. Yes, I can support you with this signed and filed. There's no need to. They can just just talk among themselves and say, you know, this upcoming election in uh, Austria, it's not looking good. I don't like this guy. And to be honest, he's got a bit of a commie attitude about him. Yeah, well, we can help you with that. God knows how often this goes on. I mean, it must have been, if we're talking about 40, 50 years, and you know how intelligence operations tend to snowball, to spiral. First, they get their fingers in one pie and then it's the next thing and before you know it, I mean, 40 years of total secrecy. In fact, let's just call it 70 years because since 1990, it was it was buried. You, you probably noticed, I, actually, he made reference to it a few times, uh, Daniele, that uh, about this episode in 1990, mm-hmm. the timing of, the, the, the one glimpse of uh NATO's secret warfare against Europeans that came out. It, it came out in the Italian papers and therefore across Europe 
the day before or the day of Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, mm-hmm. after which is bur- totally buried because there's a whole build-up in the first Gulf War. Yeah, I mean... What a timing. I know, it would be a bit conspiratorial to think that, uh, um, you know, the Gulf War was planned. <laughs> was planned around there. Uh, well, obviously it wasn't, but... Um, well, uh, what I suspect, uh, there are some clues in the book that uh, Giulio Andreotti, then Italian Prime Minister, um, was being sort of delayed as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Just despite the inevitability of it, God, it had to because he was put under pressure by Italian senators. Um, yeah, but it could just be one of those things. I think Ganser himself just knows it as a remarkable coincidence, but um, it's it's just curious how history works like that. This, I mean, this should have been. Can you can you imagine if today the news broke that there is let's say, official confirmation of some some form or another that the U.S. government and the British government and other governments in Europe have been deliberately creating terror plots uh, 9-11, that they were behind 9-11. That's essentially what happened in 1990, very briefly. Uh, The the NATO must have been... (laughs) the, The fact that they issued two statements, you know, one after the other. The first one being something, I think, yeah, Ganser has just described it, where a NATO press postman makes a statement to the effect of, um, we don't know anything about this, or, or anything we do know about this must be secret. <laughs> but even that worried them, because the next day they, they backtrack with another statement mm-hmm. to say, the statement we said yesterday, we can neither confirm nor deny what we said. Yeah. Uh, that, that, but yeah, but it's too late. You've, it's not too late because the what people we're talking about here are powerful enough to bury something. Yeah. Um, the whole uh, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to very, it's really hard hard to tease it out. You know, um, exactly what uh, what the plan was here. You know, because you had so many people. It's, it's the same problem you have with the Cold War, whether or not the Cold War was. Uh, was a manipulation, was was bullshit, essentially. Um, simply, you know, a, a means to an end that there was no real threat from the commies or there certainly was no sense of a threat from the commies in the West. Because uh, it's not as simple as that. Certainly there were, there probably were people who were manipulating the whole thing and didn't really knew that it wasn't, the Cold War wasn't a real war, it wasn't, there wasn't a, a Soviet threat. But there were far more people, kind of more underling type people below them, below them who all believed the Cold War propaganda yeah. and the hype and got their knickers in a twist about the whole thing. And, you know, McCarthyism and Reds under the bed and, oh my God, our way of life and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff there that's believable for a lot of people. But at a higher level, um, I'd say there were people who realized that more than anything else, it's just, uh, we're using it. It's a big sham. It's a big manipulation. And that is proven uh, essentially by um, somebody's hooked up hey Doug <laughs> yeah try and do that because we're getting a bit of feedback 
Sorry, folks. Just uh, we're just uh, experimenting a little bit tonight uh, with uh, Google Hangouts uh, while we're doing the show. So I just sent the link to the, to the um, on the chat. As you can hear, somebody's still playing the audio in the background, but it doesn't matter. Uh, we'll learn it. We're just doing a little test to see. Um, okay, go ahead. So, yeah, I think that's better. So basically, what Google Hangouts is, we we it's more or less like people or on air, and um, I'm not sure, can can somebody in the chat room tell me whether or not you can hear uh, Doug, for example, who's just uh, said a few words there? Can people hear Doug? Doug, say something. Can everybody hear Doug? I can see Doug and hear him. Nope, couldn't hear Doug. Yeah, but, yeah other people who are on Google Hangouts. Okay. Okay, no problem. Yeah, the thing is, um, yeah, so we'll work this out. I don't think the audio comes through, but people, it's basically the idea is that uh, people can simply um, see. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to just uh, mute some people here. Um I'm still hearing myself. Um, there you go. Now you're all muted. So uh, the idea being, to get back to what I was saying, the idea being that it's simply for people to, at this stage anyway, just to see, uh, have a visual of the show as well. Um, so, I mean, it shouldn't, it's just not a problem for, uh, for uh, walk slowly there on the, on the chat room. It's not a, it's something that anybody can just, uh, you might have to have a Google account or something like that, but it's pretty easy, pretty easy to sign up and then you just go to the link and you just get some video footage, streaming video footage of what we're actually doing here. Uh, so, um, but anyway, getting back to the point. Um, what was I saying? Yes, the Cold War. It's all, whether or not the Cold War was all a load of nonsense. It was for certain, certain people, but for most people it was... Um, you know, they believed it. They believed the hype, and that's why... But as I was saying, Ganser exposed the fact that they... Certain people did see it as something to be used uh, to further the political goals, right? Because, um, you know, they hyped up the threat from the from the res. But then, at the, well, maybe it's, it is a bit more complicated than this, obviously, because there's people who believed... Not that they believed the, the commie threat, the, the commies are coming, commies are coming, scare, but they realized that if the commies did come... Uh, or if the communists, quote unquote, got uh, into power, or, you know, were able to, you know, um, maybe even get into government, and you have a communist party prime minister in European countries, you would have significant changes in the economic system, and even and the social system in that country, which, generally speaking, tends to limit the extent of the abuses of uh, the corporations, for example, corporatists and. Um, you know, it's generally a more humanitarian type of system. A socialist system is, at least in theory, a more humanitarian type of system. And um, I think that's one of the things that these people who knew they were using the Cold War as a as a manipulation, that it was, there was no real threat of the commies kind of spreading across the globe and dominating the whole world and lording it over everybody and making it all work in the mind type of thing, that what they, they, they pretended that was the case, but what they were really afraid of was left-leaning, essentially, hmm. governments getting into power uh, in European countries and effectively 
you know, kicking out America, maybe kicking out NATO, kicking out, uh, you know, corporations are certainly reining them in and preventing them from essentially uh, becoming a kind of a secret government in many countries with the power that they wielded. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah the, the clue to that is the fact that um, in, in the atmosphere of the time, 60s, 70s, even the 80s, anyone who was pro-peace falls into that category. Just, just uh, the fact that, as Ganser mentioned, the Nordic and Scandinavian countries were considering creating a, a nuclear-free zone in Northern Europe, or what about across the band of Northern Europe? That is the kind of thing that already is threatening to the U.S. power structure. I think. I think this is the big secret. The big secret is that we live in and have done since 1945 the United States of Europe. I mean, Europe is U.S. occupied. Yeah. This is this is what they don't want people to really come to terms with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, sorry, I'm getting distracted with these. Who are you waving at? I'm, I'm waving at those Canadian people. Um, uh, <laughs> it's, it's like a silent movie, you know. Um, it's a pity we can't get it, actually. Well, it would be a bit, it might get a bit complicated, basically, if we were to have everybody on there, because you'd have multiple voices all, kind of like background noise and stuff, you know, um, and anybody could just, you know, there'd be tea, not sounds of, you know, tea being slurped and, people talking and laughing in the background and that kind of thing, you know, so it's probably better that we don't have a complete free house, free for all, you know. Um, but, um, yeah. So, also, this ties in with what's going on at the moment. I mean, we've talked about it in recent shows. I mean, there are, it's in the press, tens of thousands of Westerners, allegedly, making their way to uh, fight as proxies, as mercenaries in the Middle East. How in the hell are they managing that? They're not doing it just, you know, of their own accord. There must be a support structure along the way, first to induce them to do it, then to get them to the country, funding, training, etc., etc. And I have no doubt that this Western jihadi structure is just the same structure adapted for current operational needs post 9-11. I mean, there's a story recently in Belgium. The only way that they could answer it was just to call the whole thing a hoax because one of the idiot jihadis in Belgium posted on his Facebook page proudly all the pictures of him and his buddies training in the Ardennes in Belgium before heading out to Syria. I mean, he's got like five or six photos of him and the boys dressed head to toe, full camo, war paint, uh, clearly military issue um, helmets, visors, vests, and not uh, weapons, of course. Uh, as if to say, look at us, here we are, we're training in Belgium, and we've been set up by NATO, CIA, and soon we're going to have to fight their war for them. Now, of course, he himself, who the individuals involved in this, to some extent or another, will have, they're on a need to know. So they, they know, they, maybe they're true believers. Maybe they really do think they're going to fight holy war in the Middle East. Maybe they weren't even Muslim at all. In fact, I can see in two of the photos, the guys are white. So they clearly, 
Westerners, completely Westerners. Point of making the trains were probably still operational. I mean, some of the, one of the things that came out was the extent to which um, this was not just a an ideological network ready for the eventuality of this Soviet invasion that never came. It was very well managed. There were a hundred and fifty some sites in Italy alone where they had built stashes of weapons. Okay, 1945s, you're thinking, well, by 1990, they were old. No, when they were uncovered in 1990, they were brand new weapons. 40 years, you keep the system updated, you keep, you expand sites, you you, you make that there are always people you can all do them into believing the commie threat. Or they just like to kill people. We know Ukraine right now, they're there because they're being safari. They like to hunt people. So yes, Ganser is right. There, we're, we're, no need to freak out. We're talking about a tiny minority of people. But they're there in numbers. Mm. The German investigation into their Gladio network talks of up to 13,000 people at any one time as part of this conscious network, 13,000 people. It makes sense, though, because there were a lot of terrorist attacks in Germany. Germans know them as the Red Rote Faction, the communist brigades of Germany. But oh, this was a NATO CIA operation from the start. Well, it's, it's a standard painting yourself up as your, as your enemy and, and carrying out, uh, it's essentially a false flag operation, carrying out attacks. I mean, it, it, it's not new uh, in the modern era. It, 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 that kind of operation, that kind of tactic goes back uh, a long, long time. But uh, there's a notable example from uh, uh, Kenya in, in the 19, early 1950s when the, the, the Kenyan resistance, the, the Ma Mao, they were called, um, against, essentially um, fighting against British occupation um, they, they sent over uh, one of their one of their military captains at the time came up with the idea essentially of um, of going out with other British soldiers dressed up with their with their faces painted in in black boot polish and attacking white settlers in Kenya to make this to make the resistance look bad you know so that's a it's a standard operation you know and it's <clears throat> I don't know people just don't don't want to go there in their minds and think that. Uh, they, quote unquote, would do that. You know, your leaders or anybody in power would do that because it's a, it's a scary thing for people to contemplate the idea of um, the people on which you kind of believe you depend uh, for a lot of things, for running the country, for you know, and also just the idea of them being your leaders and someone to look up to and someone to look after you. It's kind of a very childish kind of thing, but uh, it's very scary for people to believe that um, or to have to consider the idea that your leaders actually are your are working against you and don't really care very much about you at all and will use and abuse and sacrifice you essentially uh, for their own gain. So uh, that's why most people just, that's why this this idea, that the idea of false flag operations doesn't gain much traction amongst the ordinary members of the public, not because there isn't evidence for it, because there's a vast amount of evidence for it. Uh, and cold, hard logic type of thing would suggest that, yeah, uh, especially when you factor in the idea of psychopaths, um, that it's obvious obvious that that would happen eventually. 
uh, but people don't want to believe it. So it's an emotional reaction, emotional resistance uh, to believing something because it scares people and they don't want to believe it and they'd rather not believe it and stay in their kind of happy pink bunny land, um, you know, where everything's fine and God is in his, and God is in heaven is all, and all is right with the world and ignore the, the reality of the world they live in. And that's the perennial problem of um, of life on this planet, I think, is that people are refusing or unwilling to accept and see the world as it actually is. And that's the bizarre thing. That's how it actually is, you know. I mean, sure, there's deception and cover-ups. The elite know that they can't, they don't want to, you know, expose themselves in this way. And they're not just so blatant about but <laughs> somebody else is in trouble. I'm gonna get somebody else. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know what else to say, but that's that's the state of the world. Uh, that's the way it well, is. And something else that that strikes you about Ganser's research. It's a time and again it keeps coming back to the the role of the CIA and but a special shout out needs to be given for the British role. I mean MI six I think got the ball rolling on this during the war before this Gladio slash day behind network was officially or formally started up after the war. Because, of course, it wasn't until 1946 that Churchill makes his famous Iron Curtain speech that turns uh, Stalin's Russia into from an, the ally which helps us, which actually won the war, to the ally which is now the evil empire, which threatens our very existence. Uh, so during the war, the British intelligence was key in setting up resistance movements against the Nazis. And thereafter, they also played a central role. And it, it, it's an, and this is another kind of another, ah, another way in which we see the extent of the kind, the, the, the nature of the empire we live in, that it is Anglo-American. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many angles. You, you keep coming back to this. What is going on there? Is it, it is it an English thing, an English language thing? Uh, is it national? Is it ethnic? Is it genetic? I mean, what? It there's there is the ruling elite are so. I mean, the real head people are substantially to be found in the highest echelons of power in London and Washington. Mm-hmm. Well. There's maybe an argument to be made that uh, they were on first, if you know what I mean. That doesn't doesn't mean there isn't a genetic component to it, but once you have a group of people of whatever race who have these ideas and set out to implement them and to dominate and control the world, then they s- establish a system, you know, a hierarchy and a, a, a system within their country, wherever they live, um, and that over generations it, it embeds itself. You know, and it comes to them to dominate the rest of the world. So you could argue that maybe any other race on the planet might have 
uh, or could potentially uh, end up in the same position as the as the rulers of the world type of thing. It's just that the the, the white Westerners, largely you know English Anglo-Saxon types, uh, got on first. But then that brings up the question: is why you know there is still the question of why they decided to do that in the first place. You know, um, you know, there's something. Yeah, there's something different about them, you know. Um, you know, they they recognised themselves whether it was just because of that's the way it was, or uh, that's that's the position they found themselves in. You know, when they coined the, fr- the phrase "the white man's burden," you know, that's a very uh, cynical kind of uh, elitist elitist uh, idea uh, that that they had. Essentially, it's we're better than everybody else, and it's our burden to civilise the rest of the world. You know, yeah. um, so even that attitude in itself, you know. I mean, you can see yourself, you can find yourself in a position of power and influence uh, just by a result of your natural talents, let's say. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you then view everybody else as inferior, you know, Uh, but they did and do. So for me, that's the best argument that there's something (laughs) fundamentally wrong with them, you know, in terms of when they're in a position of power, how they exercise it. Um, But then you could say, well, it's just human nature, you know. Power corrupts and uh, ultimate power corrupts ultimately, completely. Yeah. Um, no, that never satisfies me that it's just human nature. It's because not. people don't, if, if that was just human nature, they wouldn't need to be doing this kind of stuff. Because mm-hmm. everybody. To terrorize people and to keep them in line. To, uh, to, line quote, to quote one of the actual Gladio terrors in Italy. Uh, and he, I mean, this is interesting. Like the, the lower level guys understood it well. Uh, Joe read out the, qu- the quote from Vinci Guerra, who was uh, one of these terrorist operatives connected with Italian intelligence. And there was another guy who said, well, the reason we do what we do, we destabilize in order to stabilize. That's kind of, that's a pretty complex concept. What does he mean? Stabilize, keep a system in place where we remain privileged. And we do that by periodically provoking people in a controlled manner, in a manner which we control. Because otherwise, actual instability arises. Now, that's instability from a kind of a, a psychopathic side. It's actually not. It, what they fear is real stability, where a country is actually ruled in a fairly rational reasonable way in a civilized way that is the outcome they are so terrified of that they will terrorize other people to prevent that from ever happening this is why we have uh, fake democratic governments in western europe they're not democratic at all i mean the eu epitomizes it i mean they jokingly refer to this among themselves as the democratic deficit the very fact that the EU is a structure that the vast majority of decisions made are made by people who are not elected. They're unknown. And this is stability for them. And what do we see around us? Day after day, just unfolding chaos. And it is substantially their fault. Yeah. And they keep people, um, you know, every year, for example, a uh, couple of days ago, three days ago, 6th of November was, um, uh, <clears throat> no, it was today actually, was the commemoration of the, 
Remembrance Sunday. Remembrance Day, Remembrance Sunday, First World War. Uh, and the Brit- this is a big thing for the British, you know, they were their, their red poppies. Uh, but there's been, there's, you know, over the past few years, there's been uh, a campaign going on uh, where they were black poppies. And uh, it, it got some media attention this year, at least, um, where there's a group uh, of people who um, say that we should be wearing black poppies to remember um, basically what the war was about, that it was an imperialist war and that people were conscripted into it and uh, millions of people died. It war. Yeah, it was a British war. Um, Let's just clarify that. People get into the, well, oh, there were imperialist powers all over Europe, and oh, they squabbled, and oh, they hated the little people, therefore they had a war. That's the acceptable counter-narrative to it was great and glorious. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, substantially, this was created by the British elite. Yeah. Uh, That's a whole other show. Yeah, so... Yeah, but but, I mean, people should... I mean, it's kind of heartening to see that at least some people are are aware enough to kind of uh, to mount this kind of campaign toward black poppies and uh, of course they've been demonized in the media and all that kind of stuff and you're meant to glorify the war dead you know and it's all couched in terms of you know respect for the dead and stuff but it's essentially glorifying uh, the sacrifice of civilian lives for uh, elite profit essentially that's what Remember Sunday is about it's about getting everybody to feel good and uh, proud about all the people who died, their grandfathers who died in the First World War, and to honor their sacrifice for this or that or other good, when in fact the sacrifice they made was a completely unwitting sacrifice. Uh, they didn't know what they were fighting for. They were fooled into believing they were fighting for something when they were fighting for something else. And the sacrifice they made ultimately was to sacrifice their lives so that uh, a global elite could... Uh, you know, uh, solidify or strengthen its position uh, as a global elite. So, so that a British elite could solidify its yeah, position British, as... A British global elite, yeah. Well, it, this it's, was it's a bit more the, complex now because... Well, it was at the height of the British Empire, so well, they were the, certainly were the global elite at that point. Yeah, time. although the New York bankers came out on top. Well, the yeah, end. bankers too. The, yeah. the British won a lot of territory. I, I was fascinated. I was reading about the First World War and what was going on. Um... <laughs> At one point, there was a, a kind of a, a, a mini betrayal among countless other betrayals, but the British had promised to send more troops to the Western Front, but they kind of left that, they left that book with France and instead sent over a million soldiers to where the Middle East, and that's where the occupation of the Middle East began. Over a million soldiers, the justification being, well, we can't let the Germans, but the, the Germans had long since been stopped. This was the whole fear of, a, of the First World War, that oil was coming online. Mm-hmm. And Germany's trying to build a railway to Mesopotamia where they know there are vast reserves of, of oil. Mm-hmm. World War One starts, and in a minute, Britain gets its priority straight. It's a million troops to Iraq. their own interest first and foremost it was the most disgusting venture it's sickening to, to, to this day it's remembered as something totally different from what it was 
to quit war to end all wars. And now here we are living in what? What do they call it? The endless war on terror. I mean, mm-hmm. you're living. I mean, it's just ridiculous. They're talking about they're talking about this war on ISIL being this Middle Eastern war taking you know 30 years. That they're going to be fighting ISIL for 30 years. I mean, it's just so farcical that it's it it, it doesn't even. It's, on the one hand, you'd say it's just it's ridiculous to ignore it. It's stupid, you know. But you can't because it has serious implications for for everybody on the planet, essentially, and it involves people being killed. And uh, but it's amazing that they're able to pass that off again. I mean, the war on terror was going to last. Uh, if, if if people remember, remember the war on terror, which was nine eleven. Uh, provoked by 9-11. They were hunting down bin Laden and these, these groups that wanted to attack America was going to last, you know, 50 years or a generation or whatever. And, uh, but then they supposedly got bin Laden, right? So he was, um, that was done. But then they just changed the narrative. They moved the goalposts and uh, they started to move the goalposts saying, well, there are still groups out there and they were trying to resurrect different people uh, to be the new leader of Al-Qaeda. But then Al-Qaeda went off. Al-Qaeda just went away and they just made ISIL. Just come up with something called ISIL, and uh, and it's going to last thirty years now. You know, it's ridiculous. You know what I mean? Uh, oh God, it just bugs me so much. The the the, the inanity of, of the narrative. You know, it's just so stupid. You know, and then this idiot comes out, whoever he is, this uh, daywalker, <laughs> so-called Navy SEAL, who claims that I shot Bin Laden. You know, uh, yeah. Well, you know what? <clears throat> just I don't know. Somebody shoot him or shoot me because I can't take it anymore, you know. I mean, it's ridiculous, you know. I mean, Bin Laden died in 2001 of liver failure. Kidney de- failure. And kidney failure in, in December 2001. And, um, and the last thing Bin Laden said, the last verifiable videotape from Bin Laden was uh, where he denied involvement in 9-11 and told Americans to look to their government for the culprits. That's the last thing he said. And then he died. And yet they were hunting him for another 10 years and then found him in this silly, you know, made up raid in Abbottabad in Pakistan and then got him and threw his body into the sea and the fish ate him. I mean, it's like a, it's like a comic book. Yeah. It's ridiculous. The whole narrative is just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. And that's what it gets back to what I was saying earlier on. It's this, I'm like, what, is this real? Is any of this real? Do we, is this, I mean, this divergence between, you know, these narratives about how the world works and then you see how it obviously really works and it doesn't take a lot of digging and you just go, what's going on here? I mean, yeah, it could drive you bonkers, actually, you know, if you thought about it for too long, you know. Well, we can see it and it drives us bonkers. Anyway. Well, it drives us bonkers how others don't see it. I mean, uh, we're talking here about a, a... what are we now, 14, 13 year long horrific fantasy and how do people believe it? Mm. But then we're going back to Remembrance Day and the Great War and the Fantastical. It, it's somewhat less a fancy narrative, but it's still pretty much up there. Yeah. Obviously the Cold War was a fancy narrative. Uh, <laughs> just the, the absurdity of Reagan calling... Soviet Russia, the evil empire mm-hmm. in the 1980s. Yeah, it was like something out of people's nightmare, you know. They just created this or something out of a Hollywood movie, although, you know, yeah, there were Hollywood movies then. And it was like, you know, it was Star Wars, you know. 
I mean, it's, you can get into all sorts of stuff there about, about whether they actually, you know, reinforced the fantasy narrative that they presented to people that they wanted people to believe that they reinforced that in Hollywood movies. Or was it the other way around? Did the make believe of movies kind of give government officials like how to, how to pitch, you know, their, their truth about the world or what was going on in the world to the people, you know? Either way, it's fantasy. Either way, it's, it's, they, they hit on just make believe. And they pitched it to people as make, as pure and utter make believe. And they asked people to believe things that are completely illogical and irrational. And people suck it up because they want to believe nice fairy stories and happy pink bunny rabbits and fluffy things, you know, and everything's all right in the world. And I can just forget about, you know, anything happening in the world and just focus on my, my little life type of thing, you know, uh, somebody else is taking care of that. Yeah, somebody's taking care of it, all right, and they're taking care of you in in the in the in the not so positive uh, meaning of that phrase. Um, yeah, the, the the glue that holds this fantasy together is the terror. Yeah, the fear. Absolutely. So it's um, it's pretty sad, but maybe it'll just break at some point. You know, the whole thing will just break down. Um, you know, you never know. It might uh, film, and but then the, the come back. You come back to the believe the, the block against ever coming out, even if the powers that be screw, screwed up royally and just had, you know left something hanging out, you know, hanging out the window type of thing, and exposed themselves. Uh, <laughs> um, people would cover it up for them. Exactly, people would. Cover they don't want to believe they can't there would be that kind of uh, I don't know if it's who's that uh, somebody's on my mm. sorry folks we're just yeah somebody just uh, was getting some feedback there um, yeah I forgot what I was going to say there it's um, people would never ever ever believe it yeah you, no matter you what happened no you don't see the great awakening no on a horizon there joe well how can it be when people won't accept uh, a harsh reality you know a harsh version of of, of reality you know uh, a scary version of reality a reality where they have to take responsibility for themselves um but they're not children anymore essentially you know in the same way you know kids parents feed them you know um you know, there's, a, there's another level up from that where the government feeds the population. The government ensures that everybody has enough to eat and it decides what's good for you to eat and all this kind of stuff. It's a real shirking of responsibility. And you see people who don't want to take that responsibility because, it's, I don't know, it's too complicated for them. I mean, they don't want to... But because it's always tied with the idea of that what you've been eating, for example, all these years is bad for you. Um it's very hard to convince anybody of that. Obviously, there's an addiction aspect to it. People have been fed stuff that's addictive to them, so there's that block as well. But people are really resistant to thinking that uh, that you know government agencies and corporations and stuff could have been uh, selling them and encouraging them to eat toxic food for so long. So there's two reasons. One of them is that they're addicted to the to- addicted to the toxic food, and the other one is that they don't want that old one about they don't want to believe that a corporation or a government or anybody in a position of power over them would ever not have their best interests at heart, would ever do something consciously malevolent or, you know, evil 
uh, to them. <laughs> it's a real conundrum. I don't know what, what the solution is. I mean, it's kind of is like like the whole planet, the population of this planet, are like a bunch of children, and it's like asking a child to take responsibility for itself. Uh, where until then, uh, adults have been taking responsibility. So. Uh, it's almost like I can't blame a lot of people because it is like asking a child to take responsibility that is unreasonable for the child to take for itself. Um, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I can't complain too much about people not doing that because in some way they are very childlike and don't want to assume, haven't, don't, they don't have the ability or the inclination or whatever to assume that kind of responsibility for themselves and their own safety and their own lives and to reject all authority. What it comes down to is rejecting the idea of authority at least an earthly authority, you know, um, you know, rejecting the, the, the what the apparent absolute need that some people have to have a human authority uh, guard over them and watch over them and be responsible for them, you know. Um, I don't understand it really. It's something very deep because there's a lot of people who feel that who have never felt threatened in their whole lives. I've never really felt the need for that kind of a, an authority to watch over them. The only time they feel it, and this is where we get back to the elite, kind of pushing that uh, terrorism threat or terror threat or some vague, amorphous, large, terrible, scary, monster-type threat thing that is going to attack ordinary people. And they've repeatedly applied that kind of a dose of terror to people to get them to, to keep them or to get them to uh, look to authority to protect them from it. Uh, because otherwise, maybe they think that people would just say, well, why do we need the government anyway? Who are these people? You know? So, um, it's, uh, yeah. But th- that in itself is part of growing up. You know? We realize that there are bad people out there, i.e. like people in positions of power who would use that uh, terror threat or terrorism threat or some amorphous threat against you to manipulate you. You know? Uh, and it's simply growing up and, and accepting the fact that that reality exists, and that ties into psychopathy, because psychopathy is the ultimately the is ultimately the explanation that people need to really uh, believe what you're what you're telling them in that respect, because it doesn't make sense from a human nature. Because the other problem people have is that they self-reference, they use themselves and what they would or wouldn't do as a reference for what other people in positions of power would or wouldn't do. And to get around that one, you have to say, well, listen, not everybody's the same. Mm-hmm. And that's why the idea of psychopathy or the concept of, of psychopaths is extremely important for people to to grok because it gets them over that hurdle of, well, I wouldn't do that. Nope, I'm, a, I'm, I, I'm just your average kind of person and so are they. And I would never do that. That's unconscionable what you're suggesting they would do. A human being would never do that. That's what they feel within them, and they're, and they're right. A human being would never do that, but you're not really talking about human beings here. No, you're not. And they're incre- I think they are behaving increasingly erratically. Or, no, they're just doing what they've always done. We, we, do, we do think there is um, an accentuation of their behavior. Yeah. And it seems to feed back into the system mm-hmm. in terms of making more of those children more petulant. I mean, I'm not going to suggest, you know, a revolution is underway and or it will have any success, but notice that 
there are protests, mass protests happening pretty much everywhere. Um, some major ones in Europe this week and in the US. The numbers for which the police always say, oh yeah, 30,000 people, but even the media who are present and say, you know what, we're talking about a million people in Rome recently protesting. And they don't, there have not been such figures before, at least not in the modern era. So that is something new. That is at least a, a marker of some kind of a reaction, even if it only amounts to a, a naive petulance or anger on the part of people. It's fully justified, etc. It may or may not lead to anything, but it's something. It's it's a symptom of, um, I think it's a symptom of growing up. Yeah, when people have had enough and, you know, the the abuse and the corruption uh, and there's more and more evidence for it coming out all the time and people are finally getting to the point, at least certain certain yeah. people are finally, finally getting to the point where they just, you know, the only way that they can actually express how they feel and what they're seeing is to get out in the street and there's just going to be more and more of those, yeah. especially when it's well organized. I mean, in Brussels, it was the anti-austerity. <laughs> the one in Brussels was, I've seen a few because I used to live there and I always complained that, you know what, the, the, the trade unions, they organize a demonstration. They pick a nice safe day, like a Saturday or Sunday. People get out, they wave the flags, they go home. You haven't given, you know, two fingers to the man at all. They haven't made any kind of a dent. Well, this week they did it in the middle of the week and people rioted. I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. Chances are high the riots were instigated by Ajahn Provocateur. Nevertheless, it was uh, different. There's anger that's present. 100,000 people in Brussels, one of the most boring places on the planet. Sorry to any Belgian friends who live there, but it is. Uh, it's good to see them actually really bringing it home, or at least to some of the middle-level managers. You know, we have a problem here. Yes, you do have a problem here. People are pissed off. The one that it, was, it must have been at least a million people. Um, had to be. People went home because the city flooded, and then they just came back out within hours of the next day. Yeah, there was a flood, but hell, we're back. Which is very interesting because we 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 really think that the part of what, what's going on, another symptom of a reaction to the psychopathology, is that the environment itself mirrors this back. And this is this is another um, stream of information that feeds back into the system, where I think sooner rather than later, something has to give. If it's not people literally overrunning parliament and chucking out a government, it's a major catastrophic flood or yeah, fireball event. I mean, <clears throat> I'm wondering what Jen's uh, Jen's cat thinks about all this, but uh, I'm just uh, Jen's cat. Who? Yeah, yeah, that's her handle name. No, no, she's got a cat on 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 the. <laughs> He was he was on there. He was listening very intently. I think he wanted to say something, but um, meow meow, <coughs> feed me. <coughs> um, yeah. So yeah, like you said, there have been a lot of protests, and I think they're going to be playing down protests a lot. Um, as they increase, they'll be played down more and more. Uh, there was the one in Brussels 
protests all over France last week over the killing of that guy down here um, near where we are. There were protests in there were protests in Ireland, in, in London, and in uh, Pakistan. Not, was it Pakistan? Yes. No, Pakistan. there was a big one in India. In India, yeah. And that was also climate related. Mm-hmm. There'd been uh, major flooding, and the, the anger was at the lack of response. There's another thing feeding back into it. It wasn't the political. It was more or less spontaneous reaction to yeah, exactly the government not giving a shit. Yeah, because that's what happens. People, people essentially believe the lies. Uh, they're too afraid to you know believe the truth about the, their leaders and what the way the world actually works and how they're running the place into the ground. So they just sit down and believe the the the, the happy narrative type thing and ignore it. They shut it out. Shut it out. Because they can still, because they can just get on with their lives, keep their heads down and just get on with their normal lives. But but it seems that by some strange kind of um, mechanism, it seems to be that when people continue to do that and the excesses of the elite get worse and worse and worse, then that's when that's when nature, Mother Nature, uh, inter, intervenes and in a, in a strange sort of way provokes them to get out in the street and start protesting over lack of government response to... Things like uh, climate change, for example, and and flooding, earthquakes, all sorts of stuff that the government isn't responding to and doesn't care because that's in it's, it's in its nature not to care, and it's not really going to do very much to help people, uh, especially in maybe poorer countries, and that's going to provoke far more, far more uh, protests and people in the streets than uh, you know any kind of uh, actual understanding of of political abuses. Yeah. And there was also yeah. in in Mexico just recently that horrible story about I think it was forty three students were abducted and killed uh, a week or two ago, and there were protests in uh, at the at the, I think it was the presidential palace um, in Mexico city just last night, and they were using uh, like barriers and stuff to break down the door, and they set fires fire to the front doors because. Uh, first of all, they tried to blame it on these, uh, on the, the this, a mayor and his wife or something of of the town where they were abducted. But then it turns out that uh, it was revealed that police had handed the students over to whoever it was. You're never going to figure out. But there's a guy who was arrested for it and said that the police actually handed uh, these students over to uh, people to have them killed because they needed to be taught a lesson. I mean, that's kind of crazy. I mean, Mexico. No offense to any Mexicans listening, but Mexico is loco. Is completely nuts. I mean, it's like it's like in terms of just the 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 transparency almost with, with which the the elite there kind of carry out their 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 policies and their you know essentially expose their true nature. The 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 clarity with which they expose it seems to. Uh, like beat every other country in the world. You know, every other country, the elite try, try to uh, cover it up. But in Mexico, it's just like they don't even really make a show of hiding the fact that they're involved in uh, murder on a kind of like extremely regular and extremely large scale, you know. Um, so, yeah. But we... Uh, Putin needs to get into some regime change yeah. there in Mexico. He does, yeah. Use it as a base to make a full ground war assault on on Washington. Yeah, it would be nice. It, you know, it's not there'll be nothing to lose at this stage, really. 
I mean, I would. I think I'm getting close to the point where I would be. A, you know, I wish there was a a nu- nuclear exchange. You know, just to shake things up a bit. Maybe I'd regret saying that, but it's just you get so frustrated with the slow kind of the slow slide into the into the pit. You know, um, you'd rather see it all just. Uh, out in the open type of thing, you know. But they're never going to do that because ultimately, uh, it's not the elite against the elite anywhere. It's 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 generally speaking the the globalists, as Alex Jones would say, against um, against ordinary people. It's the ordinary people are the the collateral, not the collateral. Well, yeah, the collateral or the uh, the the value or the the wealth essentially that's being fought over uh, on this planet at a, at the at the highest level. It's it's keeping people uh, corralled and contained and stupid and ignorant and allowing the elite to lord it over them continuously, you know. Um, so, you know, the idea of a, n- a nuclear war isn't really on the cards because that would just kill off too many of the cattle. And uh, what's the point? In, you're not a very good farmer if you if you blow up a bunch of your, a bunch of your herd, you know. Um, but we, Neil just put together a... This month's, well, last month's um, summary, climate change, if you want to call it that, uh, major kind of climate events and other uh, similar events as as we do every month. And uh, yeah, this one is, it carries on in the same theme as, as, as the last several months. Things, I don't know, things are getting worse. Well, well. I'm not sure we can say they're getting worse. It's certainly getting worse over a period of a number of years. Over the past several months, it's kind of more the same. It's just mad floods, mad... Well, I, I see something new, something that I didn't even know was possible before. I mean, uh, 70 centimeters, that is... Uh, I think it's over two feet it is. of rain two feet fell in... Three days. Yeah. In it's about 30 Genoa. Inches. 30 inches, yeah. Of rain, yeah. <laughs> That's 700 millimeters. Their, their annual average is about that. Is about 900. Mm-hmm. It just, it just, you know. It just dropped. So there's always something kind of new. I think the newest, the, the news on the weather front is that uh, I think American listeners are already aware of it. I think the cold front has hit the US already. The, the snow coverage total for Siberia is, I think, at a record. Um, basically, the whole width of Russia, from Pacific time zone to Moscow, is covered in snow, which is the earliest ever this has happened. And that has a big effect. Well, it's either simultaneous with or it has a knock-on effect on the jet stream, which worsens the loop that goes down and creates the so-called polar vortex over North America. So that's not really breaking news to Americans. I mean, they're going to expect another super cold winter. Well, it's, um, it's not just, I mean, it seems that it's starting kind of early and in earnest because um, if you notice, there's two storms right now. There's one off uh, in the Pacific uh, that's heading towards Alaska and another one crossing, crossing the Atlantic heading towards the UK. And they're both kind of going to kind of hit land. They're not... Okay, they're not uh, hurricanes or anything, but they're, they're storms they're going to bring. The one off the Pacific is going to result in this uh, as it meets uh, the kind of uh, the warm 
cellularly flow, it's going to cause this kind of polar vortex or cold uh, to push across 42. Apparently, 42 U.S. states are going to uh, are going to be get this blast of Arctic air, and then at the same time, um, Western Europe is uh, is getting this kind of major storm uh, that that is going to cause you know record levels of rainfall across not just the UK but also Northern Europe and stuff. And there's also there's winter storms, like you just mentioned, Russia and the U.S. Yes, already has had major snowfall, and snowfall record snowfall in different places, record early snowfall. But there's uh, winter storms that are extending from right now from Turkey, just on the other side of those rains that are falling in Italy, uh, further further east from Turkey to, to Japan, across like that big swathe of uh, Eurasia, there are winter storms. So it, it all just kind of it all shapes up to look like. The, a kind of a new ice age or a mini ice age really kind of making its presence felt um, this winter and it's just begun right now because we're just in early November and it's uh, we've got several months of, of winter to go and it's uh, I think it's probably going to be it's going to be worse you know um, than any year previously this this winter is probably going to be worse than maybe not everywhere. But in places, there's going to be real, like uh, in the way that you're seeing this, like major rainfall, unprecedented rainfall in Italy. I think you're going to see unprecedented snowfall in in a lot of places that maybe for the first time is really going to cause uh, serious problems for people. You know, it's going to cause kind of social problems, not just kind of like, oh, I got to dig myself out, I got to dig my car out, whatever, or lots of snow. It's going to be snow on a level that... Um, people haven't seen in a long time uh, yeah not in our lifetimes anyway no so uh yeah and just in in homage to harrison who who left us um uh there's some crazy animals going on this week as well uh, crazy animal attacks uh, elephant tramples man to death in zambia a woman was killed in an elephant attack in nepal in nepal which is the sixth fatality in 10 weeks so in the last 10 weeks, elephants have killed six people in Nepal. <clears throat> this may be tied to, you know, the ultimate the ultimate cause of uh, of this weather, these anomalous weather uh, patterns that we're seeing as well. And, and that ultimately goes on out into the, the solar system and the fact that the sun is extremely, it's in a minimum, essentially that the, this, this solar cycle has been extremely low and which results in us the planet losing its kind of uh, protective uh, sheath, which means that cosmic radiation is much more uh, prevalent or can penetrate in, onto the planet uh, much more easily. Uh, and that, and, you know, that has electrical effects, I suppose, and that then leads into strange weather, and it's all very complicated, but to figure well, it out... Well, it increases cloud cover. Exactly. For one, which is part of why there's so much more precip- precipitation... The other thing is volcanoes going off. Uh, above land, it's noticeable. I mean, there are people who are dedicated to monitoring volcanic activity. And if you go to their blogs, they're like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. And, of course, we included a couple of videos this month, and another one exploded in Japan spectacularly. There's one in uh, Costa Rica that went, oh, this is dormant. It'll never go again. Uh, it just did. And, of course, this is going to be happening under the oceans as well. Yeah. 
And it's really, really interesting little uh, snippet of a, a fireball. I mean, there's been a lot of fireballs, but there's a, in the, this month's stat summary that we just uploaded today, uh, I can't remember where it is, but there's a there's a, a video of a fireball kind of detonating. And most of the fireballs we've seen so far have been just these you know, trails of uh, light in the sky and then maybe um, breaking up and little like sparks coming off it and it just fading out. But this one actually more than any other, in fact, maybe it's the first one, where you see it just, you see it detonating. You see it just exploding and you see a kind of a, 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 a almost like a dust trail from it, you know, mm. where it's just, it's like a rock that just went boom. You know, there isn't, there isn't so much light to it as opposed, as, well, there's, 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 there's fire uh, with it, but there's a, you see the, it kind of leaves a ring yeah. of, of dust and that brings home the idea of the amount of these things in our atmosphere and the fact that, and all the booms people have been hearing over several years, this is all space rocks and uh, meteorites exploding in our atmosphere and exploding into dust, essentially, and filling our atmosphere with dust, which leads to uh, a lot more precipitation because, you know, precipitation is associated with dust in the atmosphere that uh, congeals or coagulates, or not congeals, condenses around uh, atmospheric dust. And the more dust, the more... Uh, heavy rainfall you're likely to have so anyway I think we're going to leave it there for this week folks um, we have uh, done our duty <laughs> um, on camera on camera even you know, we, weren't even, we weren't even dressed for it you know I mean I didn't even know this was going to happen impromptu. Neil, Neil, <laughs> until Joe said look sit here look at the camera yeah what you're <laughs> You're on candid camera. No, yeah, I mean, we didn't, Neil didn't even get any makeup on or anything like that, you know, which no. is terrible, you know, because you usually have the makeup on. So, um, so uh, we have to excuse our, our terrible appearances here. Uh, we'll never get on CNN. So, um, yeah, so thanks to Daniele Ganser. He's been a great guest and he's done some great work. And uh, thanks to all our chatters and all you um, people who tuned into our all you hangouters and YouTubers. Our, our hangouter and YouTuber. This is this is going, this is going directly onto YouTube, so I'm going to have to go and uh, and, uh, and edit it, <laughs> edit it afterwards. You know, but we'll probably do the same thing again next week until you all get bored of just looking at our faces. Or maybe we'll try and bring in some props or something to make it a bit more interesting. You know, I think we have an alien somewhere, a blow an inflatable alien. We could sit on the chairs. I want to get a better camera so we have a wider view of. Uh, of what's actually going on here. So, um, but until then, uh, yeah, we'll be back next week with another show. Um, yeah, we'll do some dot connecting next week. Um, same time, same place. Yep. See you then. All right, folks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.